Well, has it ever occurred to you that there is a strong connection between Genesis chapter 3 and the Christmas season? We often hear that Jesus is the reason for the season, but why did Jesus have to come into the world in the first place? Well, as we saw last week, he came into the world to save sinners, and Genesis chapter 3 explains to us where sin came from. So there is a very close connection between these passages. It also promised that one would come and defeat Satan and sin and death. So let's go back to Genesis 3, and uh, we're going to be looking at another consideration of these uh, verses. So far, we have observed that God created a beautiful environment for the first man and woman to enjoy, a place where they could worship and obey and serve God without fear, without trauma, and to test their love for God, he gave them just one prohibition And that was they were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But soon after God completed his creative acts, an enemy entered the garden, a subtle beast empowered and controlled by Satan. And Eve fell to his deceit even while her husband looked on and with eyes wide open, he took of the forbidden fruit with her. Their immediate realization was a loss of innocence and an understanding of evil on the personal and experiential level. They were overwhelmed with guilt and shame, and they tried to hide themselves from their creator God, but they could not escape his presence and his probing questions to confirm their disobedience. After trying to blame others, They finally admitted their sin. Both said, I ate, meaning they each had broken the one commandment God had given to them. And sin always carries consequences. So the Lord cursed the serpent and the land. He righteously punished the woman and the man. And their lives now would be full of turmoil, hard work, pain, suffering, eventually death itself physically, and all the ills that the world through sin and death now experience. They would one day grow old and infirm and pass off of this earth. None of this was originally what God intended for mankind. But in spite of the fall, we still see glimpses of hope and faith and grace in the garden. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning from Genesis chapter 3. First of all, we see hope provided in God's promise there in the 15th verse. We're going to look a little deeper into that. Next, we see faith evidenced in Adam's response to everything that he's witnessed up to this point. And then in uh, verses 21 to 24, we see grace administered by God's provision of coverings and actually his removal of the couple from the Garden of Eden. And that same hope and faith and grace is still operative in the world today for those who will come to Christ in repentance and faith. So let's ask God's blessing on his word this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, once again, we're thankful 
for the word of God that reveals the most important truth for us in this life. And that's why we're here, how we got into the condition we are in, and what you did to redeem us from it. Lord, today as we look once again uh, to the failure of mankind in the garden, we're thankful that even then you gave us hope and faith and grace. And we pray, Lord, that these would work out in our lives today and help us to walk the way you intended for us from the beginning. Bless your word to our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, first of all, let's look at verse 15. And again, see here that hope is provided in God's promise. In the 15th verse, the Lord is judging the serpent. And this is what he says. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, meaning Eve, and between your seed and her seed or offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So how does this portray for us hope? Well, first of all, it shows us hope in that Satan's victory was only partial. Satan, no doubt, thought he had won the victory that day. He got what he wanted. Perhaps he thought now man's allegiance would be to him as their new head, not God. Perhaps he believed they would ally themselves with him to fight against God and that Eve would bear all kinds of children through time that would serve Satan rather than God. But God let it be known that this was not the final battle. Rather, it was the beginning of a great war for the souls of mankind. So what the Lord did is he put a sense of enmity or hostility between the woman and the serpent, meaning Satan and his seed, not friendship. And that would go on down through the ages. Now, whenever Eve saw a snake, what do you think that would remind her of? It would remind her of her failure and probably encourage her to not go that way, but to follow the Lord instead of disobeying him. But God's promise goes far beyond a personal antagonism between the woman and the serpent. It's figurative of something much deeper, much greater. So we see also here hope for the future of the faithful, the future of mankind who would trust God. In the middle of the verse, it says that this enmity would extend between your seed and her seed. What is that talking about? Well, the term seed alludes to offspring or descendants. When you put a seed in the ground, say a seed of wheat, it's going to grow up and that head of wheat is going to produce a lot more grains. So we understand that concept. Now we're using it in human terminology. So it's used in reference to immediate descendants or offspring, such as a son or a daughter. But it also may be speaking of something more distant than that, either in the past or the future. In other words, you came from a long line of ancestors. You are, in a sense, a seed of somebody way back there. 
but then it moves forward to descendants down the line in the future. It also can be used in a collective sense, not of just one person or one seed, but a whole group of people that are of uh, a certain line of descendants. So it's used here and throughout the book of Genesis and in the Bible in all these different ways. Now, the serpent seed, he, the Lord says here that he will put enmity, not simply between the serpent, Satan, and the woman, but between your seed, Satan's seed, and her seed, Eve's seed. And notice here uh, in uh, my Bible, the, the second term seed is capitalized for a purpose. Now, the serpent seed is figurative of those who are sinful and selfish, born in their natural state now because sin has entered the world. God's not talking here about the serpent having little snakes. He's not talking here about the serpent Satan um, producing demons or evil spirits either. Satan is the father of lies, and his offspring are those who believe those lies and defy God and remain in their sinful state. Satan's seed is humanity in its natural condition now of sinfulness. People are born in sin. Uh, They're born selfish. They're born self-serving. And that's why uh, we commit all the acts of sin that we do. People who are under his power and they're in his kingdom. People that the devil intends to keep under his control until they die in their sin and spend an eternity in hell with him. Now, the woman's seed has got to be different than that. Although humanity will come from Eve, everyone will be born in this condition of sin, but the hope is that they will not remain in that condition. They will become of the number of the faithful of a different group, a different seed than that of Satan. Of course, Eve will have many children, And then they will have children and so forth and so forth. And although they would be sinful when they came into this world, they don't have to be that way when they go out. So a collective group of people faithful to God is also going to develop along a different line than that of Satan's. You're going to see the development of the patriarchs. Uh, the believing people of Israel, faithful kings, and eventually the Messiah himself and the church of God. That is one particular line, one particular development over time that's going to be parallel to uh, uh, Satan and his unfaithful lost seed. So this is the beginning here in this chapter of a biblical theme of these two seeds these two conflicting communities, these two ways, these two destinies that run right through the Bible. Man is not hopelessly lost because of Adam's sin. There will be many who are of the faithful seed, many who will come to know the Lord. The conflict continues today. Either you become the seed of the faithful, redeemed and regenerate, or you remain the seed of Satan, reprobate, and degenerate. So there's hope that uh, 
everything's not going to end well, uh, end the way that Satan would like it to. God is going to ultimately have the victory. And we see that in the rest of the verse here. There's hope in this promise of victory. One who will come and change the whole atmosphere. He goes on to say to the serpent Satan, he shall bruise your head, talking about the woman's seed capitalized there, and you, the serpent or Satan, shall bruise his heel. So now we're back to two individuals, two champions, if you will, who represent uh, uh, the seed, and they're going to meet in battle, and only one will come forth as a victor. Now, it says here in verse 15 that the seed of the woman shall deliver a crushing, fatal blow to the serpent. That's what the first word bruise there means. He shall bruise or crush your head. If your head gets crushed, you're gone. And that's what is meant here. Now, as we go through Genesis, we're going to see a repetition of this terminology of the seed. In chapter 12 and 13 and 24, the promise of a seed is given to Abraham and he will have descendants uh, that will even eventually bless the Gentile nations. And the word that is used there is seed in the singular, referring to one. The promise is later given to King David. And his descendants as rulers of Israel, rulers of Judah. And eventually it comes out to one promised seed, one promised person. Now, if we go to the New Testament and the uh, book of Galatians, I want you to see how this term seed is interpreted for us in the New Testament. So go to Galatians 3. 16. It says in Galatians 3.16, now, now to Abraham and his seed, notice it's capitalized there again, were the promises made. And he does not say, and to seeds plural, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, and who is that seed? It is Christ. So you see, way back in Genesis 3, Christ is promised to be the victor who will save us from our sin and help us to defeat Satan in our lives. So that's the ultimate fulfillment of this uh, line that will lead up to the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, he defeated Satan once and for all, dealt that crushing blow when he died and didn't stay dead, but was raised again on the third day. So death in the grave could not contain Christ because he himself is life. And that defeated the purposes of Satan. There's something else that we need to remember, though, uh, and that is that typically... The seed comes from the man, not the woman. But Christ was born of a virgin 
because he could not come from the sinful seed of humanity. So through the Holy Spirit, he was conceived in the womb of Mary, thus making him both human because his mother was Mary and divine because he was God in flesh. So that's how he escapes the sinful nature of humanity. Yet we're told here in this verse that he would not remain unscathed in this conflict, this battle for the souls of men, because it is said to the serpent, you shall bruise his heel. Now, a blow to the heel is not fatal. But it does speak of conflict and of, of uh, uh, being bruised in conflict. <clears throat> and we think about the life of the Lord Jesus. Uh, there were many times in his life that at the hands of evil and cunning and subtle men, uh, he suffered. He was afflicted. He wasn't believed on by everyone. Even though his teaching could not be refuted, his miracles were amazing, and they should have drawn people to God. We read earlier he was despised and rejected of men. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes were healed. He had to go through all of those difficulties of life, many of which we face, and ultimately led to the cross and his suffering there at the cross. And all who call upon his name for salvation, well, they're not going to escape unscathed from their walk with God either. They will earn their battle scars if they stand up for the Lord Jesus Christ. For the New Testament says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So we don't escape completely either. So even in the humility and the guilt and the shame of sinful disobedience in the garden, there was the hope of future victory in Christ. <clears throat> this was not only played out at the cross, but in the lives of Christ's disciples before the cross. You remember when he sent out the 70 and they came back with this joyful report? And one of the things that they were amazed at, that even the demons are subject to us. Christ's victory was beginning to be realized even then. And then in Genesis chapter, uh, excuse me, Galatians chapter 6 again, or, uh, excuse me, chapter 3 and verse 26 <clears throat> and 29, uh, reminds us that we are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And it goes on to say, and if you are Christ then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So you see, we're of that faithful seed through the Lord Jesus Christ that was promised way back in Genesis chapter 3. And then Paul in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, he writes to that church, this is what he says, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. So we have the authority, the power over Satan in our own lives. <clears throat> we go all the way to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, 
what is portrayed there. Satan's ultimate defeat. He's going to be cast out of heaven once for all, defeated by Christ at his second coming, and eventually he's going to be cast forever in the lake of fire with all of his evil angels. So the first inkling of this hope was given to Adam and Eve, who disobeyed God in the garden, even as they began to suffer the initial effects of that disobedience. So in judgment, there is hope for those who believe on the Lord. Now, the second thing we find here is that faith is evidenced in Adam's response. Now, hope is given in the 15th verse, as God says, there's going to become, uh, there's going to come a person, uh, the seed of the woman, who's going to defeat this evil person that defeated you. <clears throat> and we see the response of Adam to all this is faith in verse 20. Now, when we, we, we read verse 20, you're going to think, <clears throat> well, that doesn't really fit very well here. But it does, actually. Verse 20 says, And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Well, Adam has been an eyewitness to all the proclamations of God as a result of their being found in sin. He's heard from God the harsh consequences of his disobedience. The animal kingdom over which he was to rule is now cursed because of him. The ground which uh, produced abundantly of itself is now going to have to be worked and uh, uh, slaved over to bring forth fruit from it. Because he listened to his wife instead of God, he would experience conflict and difficulty in his role as leader and in uh, his wife uh, in her role as wife. And he has heard the declaration that he now is going to have to cultivate the soil and and through pain and suffering and hard labor, it will eventually produce enough for him to live on. And then he will eventually experience physical death as he returns to the dust from which he was made. But he has also heard the word that gives hope. He understands that although, excuse me, it will be through great pain and sorrow, the woman, his wife, will conceive and have offspring. There will be a human race. There will be human descendants. Death has not yet become final. And one day, one of those descendants... Perhaps even the first one will deal a death blow to the enemy of mankind who participated in their fall. Now, Adam's response to all this is faith, is trust. There are no words of remonstrance here. There's no griping, there's no complaining, there's no shift blaming, uh, there's no moaning and groaning. No, Adam understands now the just results of the sin and the importance of heeding God's word. He has not resorted again to blaming his wife or God, but submissively receives what God has said, the judgment, the chastisement of God. And his naming of Eve is in demonstration of his faith and receiving God's prophetic word. 
Why? Now, Adam previously named his wife woman. That depicted her origin as coming from man. But now he gives her a personal name, Eve, indicating her destiny and her role in bringing forth human life, all life. All of us, if it were possible, could trace our line back to Adam and Eve. And although she was made by God through Adam, it's now through her that the race will continue and eventually be redeemed. So he named her Living One or Life Giver in conjunction with God's promise of a future seed, a future hope for mankind coming through her. As one commentator put it, Eve became a pledge for the continuity of the race in spite of the curse. And of course, we can add to that the hope we've already talked about. So Adam responds now in faith to God and his word, what he says. And he shows it by naming his wife in relationship to that promise of the seed. But not only do we see hope in God's promise and Adam's renewed faith, we see something else in the closing verses. And that is grace administered in God's provisions. And God gave them two provisions before they went out into the new world for them. First of all, in verse 21, Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Now that's very significant. God graciously provided a covering, not just for their bodies, but for their sin. The coverings Adam and Eve made were, were insufficient. Do you remember what they were? They grabbed some fig leaves and sewed them together and try to cover themselves with that. Well, how long do you think a fig leaf is going to last? And how comfortable is it going to be wearing leaves on your body all day? No, what they provided for themselves was insufficient to cover their guilt and their shame. Fig leaves are fragile. They're fading. They're, They're going away the moment you pluck them. And they represent for us the works of man, which can never cover the effects of sin. The couple has to learn that sin cannot be covered by our shoddy efforts. Sin results in death, if not our own, then that of a substitute. And only the Lord can provide a sufficient covering that will restore fellowship with him. So he brought to them tunics from the skin of animals. And only the Lord can provide a sufficient covering that will restore that fellowship with him. Now, it's not specifically stated here, but God's act of creation is over. So where do you think those skins came from? They imply that they must have come from an animal. So that means that God must have slain an animal in order to provide their skins for for clothing. And I wonder, although it doesn't say here, it's just speculation, I wonder 
if they may have been slain in the sight of Adam and Eve, would that not have intensified their understanding of what death is? Surely they loved the animals that God brought before them to rule in the garden. We all have our our pets, don't we? But there was no more graphic way to display what death was and what sin brought about than slaying one of these animals. And Adam and Eve would have realized that their action had to be paid for through a substitutionary act of sacrifice. That death, in order for them to escape it, had to be paid some other way. And God's provision then for them introduced the concept of atonement. We find atonement in the Bible. Did you know the Hebrew word atonement means a covering? Adam and Eve had tried to cover their sin and shame with fig leaves. But we can't atone or cover our own sins. We can't cover them up or make them right in some way. Whenever we try to cover our own sin or supply our own righteousness or our own way of dealing with sin, it's no better than fig leaves. The Bible says all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Another allusion to clothing. Atonement indicates the need for substitutionary sacrifice. And Adam and Eve learned that the only way sin could be sufficiently dealt with was by the shedding of blood. And when the law comes, it will say the only way you can be forgiven is through the shedding of blood. There has to be a substitution. Death is a penalty for sin, and something or someone must die to pay its penalty. So one commentator put it like this. Uh, By this action, it was made apparent that sin was a real and deep evil and that by no easy and cheap process could the sinner be restored. So God substituted animal life for human life. Blood was spilled so that Adam and Eve could have their sins covered until the promise of victor Jesus Christ, the Son of God, provided the full and final atonement in his sacrifice. Now, how deeply they understood that uh, is certainly not as deeply as we do today, but they woke up real quickly how serious it was to sin against God. And God graciously provided them the clothing uh, from his own hand that would cover their sin until Christ came. Now, the last thing we see here is that God graciously removed them from the garden. So let's see why. In verse 22, we have the divine counsel. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. So there seems to be some kind of a divine counsel going on there. And that might infer uh, not only the trinity of God, but perhaps a council of angelic beings like we read about in Job. All of them would be holy ones. And now, in a sense, Adam and Eve had become like them in this understanding 
of good and evil in an experiential way. But God can know evil without being tainted by it. Man cannot. Adam and Eve have forever been polluted by sin and can no longer stay in the presence of God because of that. Instead of remaining with God, they must now be separated from God. And note the imminent danger as we go on. And now, lest he, the man, put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever... And note, God doesn't even finish the sentence because it's too horrible to think about. What he's saying there is the danger now is for man to eat of the, uh, the, the tree of life and his sinful state become eternal and permanent. And so God has to get him out of the garden. Imagine going through life in a sinful state and you can never die that's your eternal state and you're stuck there forever instead of having a glorified body that the Bible promises in the New Testament so God is not going to allow that to happen and so we see in verses 23 and 24 the divine expulsion therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. Now there's a connection between the verb uh, for the man to put out his hand and the Lord sending him out from the garden. To keep him from reaching out, sending out, putting out his hand and, and making his sinful condition a forever one, God sends him out of the garden. So it's a gracious act that God provides, even though it's an act of judgment as well. And I'm sure that Adam and Eve uh, weren't moving on their own volition at this point, realizing what they had lost in the garden and perhaps reluctantly starting to move uh, toward the gate leading out into the rest of the world. We can't imagine their loss because we've never experienced their condition. It's no wonder the Lord had to drive them out in verse 24 because they didn't really want to have to go out from the presence of the Lord. No wonder the Lord had to forcefully remove them now from his sanctuary, if you will. And to prevent them from returning or any other person returning to the garden, we're told here that he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned away uh, every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So the cherubim are angelic beings and they're noted for guarding the holiness of God and the way to God. We see them in other portions of scripture. Uh, When the ark of God was carved, 
On the lid of the ark, above the mercy seat, there were carved two cherubim with their angel with their wings spreading over the top of the mercy seat. When Solomon put together his temple in the Holy of Holies on either side of the ark were again two huge carvings of cherubim with their wings over the top of the mercy seat, guarding the holiness of God, if you will. And the curtains that divided that area from the other area where the priests operated, cherubim were woven in to the curtains. Again, kind of a separating relationship to the Holy of Holies. Adam had served as priest in the garden sanctuary of God. He was responsible to take care of that garden, to tend it much like the priest would do the tabernacle in the temple of God. And he was to to guard it, perhaps from spiritual enemies. The same word that's used here was, was used of Adam in his responsibilities in the garden. And now, because Adam had failed in his responsibility, God put a cherub there who would not fail to keep people out of the garden. And I'm sure the flaming sword, whether visible or not, uh, would have kept people away from that one way or the other. And one other thought. The cherubim were placed... At the east of the Garden of Eden, that's where Adam and Eve proceeded to move. They moved out of the Garden eastward, and eastward in the Bible is a symbol of movement away from God, departure from God. The direction that Cain goes in chapter 4, out of the presence of God, is to dwell in the east. Sodom chose the well-watered plains of Sodom and Gomorrah, which were to the east. So that is movement away from God that we'll see as we look in the rest of Genesis. Although Adam and Eve must be cast out of the garden, it was still a gracious act of God attached to the promise of a coming one who would redeem them from the power of Satan, provide them with life eternal in a glorified state rather than a fallen state forever and ever. So let's just review this quickly. First of all, the hope given in the garden has now been realized in Jesus Christ. He is the promised seed who defeated Satan. All those who come to him in faith, repenting of their sin, will be forgiven and be restored in fellowship to God. They'll become Abraham's seed. They'll become children of God, members of his church. And the question is, of which seed are you today? Are you of the seed of the woman or the seed of the serpent? Then Adam's faith expressed his understanding of God's righteous judgment upon his sin. But it also showed his faith in God's promise of future redemption. Faith is necessary to take God as a word, to become saved, but also to live for him in righteousness. So first of all, have you placed your faith in him as your savior? And then are you trusting him to help you to live a good and right life? And finally, in grace, God gives us what we do not deserve. 
Adam and Eve, you and I, deserve to be eternally punished for our sin, but in in grace, God sent Christ to redeem us from the curse because he became a curse for us. So we can be thankful that we still can put our trust in God's hope of the coming of Christ. We're looking backwards on it, but he's coming again. And the grace that allows us uh, to receive him as our Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we're thankful for the wonder of Scripture. Lord, in the very chapter where we see mankind turning away from you and sinning against you and receiving the just uh, results and punishment of that sin, yet there is still hope and grace and a turning back to you in faith. Lord, we pray that we would exercise our faith and our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ who paid the full penalty of our sin. And Lord, look forward to that day when he comes again to take us to be with him. Lord, we, do, uh, we owe all this to your mercy and your grace. And we pray, Lord, you'd help us to walk in that each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>